I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we discern the meaning of scripture by searching out the culture that it was given into. We are here, the final book of the Torah, the book of Deuteronomy. And just as we have seen with every other book but Genesis, the name of this book in Hebrew has a different meaning than the English name. In English, the name of this book is Deuteronomy, a Greek word that's a combination of deuter, uh, second, and nomos, or law. So, the second law. And the etymology of this title for this book is quite interesting. In Deuteronomy 17, we read some of the rules that are to govern kings once kings are implemented in Israel. And in verse 18 of this chapter, we read this in Deuteronomy 17, 18. And it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this Torah in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. He shall write for himself a copy of this Torah. Mishneh HaTorah Hazot. Copy the Torah, this one, is the literal translation of this phrase. And so when this verse was translated in the Septuagint, this phrase was shortened to simply Deuteronomion, second Torah. And so this book received this name because this book appeared to be a second copy of the law on the surface. But in Hebrew, the name of this book is Debarim. This is plural of the word Debar. Now, Dabar is a word that is a bit loose in its meaning, as it can mean word, speech, or thing. If you were to say, what in the world is that thing? In Hebrew, you would use the word Dabar to say thing. But if you were to say, do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? The word used for word in this sentence, if translated in the Hebrew, would be Dabar as well. More specifically, Dabarim, as it's plural. So the Hebrew isn't super helpful in discerning the complete nature of this book, especially when we consider the usage of Devarim in this book, such as Deuteronomy 4.9. Only guard yourself and guard your life diligently, lest you forget the words your eyes have seen, and lest they turn aside from your heart all the days of your life, and you shall make them known to your children and your grandchildren. Now, my translation uses the words word in this verse simply because they aim for a consistent translation of every Hebrew word. Obviously, however, this word takes on the connotation of things in this sentence and not words. And so it's more than simply words that this book contains that we are to guard. It's all the things that surround the words, the events, the miracles, the promises, the blessings and curses received, as well as the words of a legal code. So this book is more than simply a retelling of the legal code for Israel. So let's look at the context of this book to see if we can discern the purpose of this book beyond just the giving of the law from chapters 5 to 25. There is a context of the point in history of Israel at the writing of this book. 
Israel's sitting on the shores of the Jordan. The conquest of Canaan is about to begin. Soon it will be blood and adrenaline and weariness. Lives will be lost. And so on one hand, this book is the calm before the storm. There is a bit of a societal context that we should consider. Moses, the man who'd been leading Israel since their freedom for the last 40 years, will die soon. Everyone knows it. Soon Joshua will be taking his place as the leader. And this book contains primarily a series of four speeches given by Moses to the people. And so this book serves as a wrap-up for the life of Moses in many ways. His history with the people and his wisdom that he wishes to pass on to those who will come after him. His grand farewell to Israel. And in this way, the book of Deuteronomy is just words. It's the final words of Moses. Then there's the context of Deuteronomy in relationship to the rest of the Torah. Last week, we spoke of the revelation of God that's contained in each of the books of the Torah. Genesis being a revelation of Hashem as the creator and the originator of all things. Exodus is a revelation of Hashem as husband to a bride. Leviticus is a revelation of Hashem as a God to be worshipped and feared and His dangerous holiness. Numbers is a revelation of Hashem as Father, willing to punish in order to train. And Deuteronomy? Is there perhaps an aspect of God that this book reveals that is then leveraged throughout the rest of Scripture? Well, to discover that, we need to look at one last piece of context. And that is the ancient Near East cultural context that this book was written into. A culture that is foreign to our own, and it contains many things that the audience of the day would have simply taken for granted. And it is one of those things that we will dig into today that reveals that this book is a revelation of God as king. The grand king, a king of kings, not just a fancy title, a reality that is wrapped up in the composition of this book. So let's read chapter 1 of Deuteronomy and then discuss this idea and then look for how this first chapter fits into the overall structure of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 1 These are the words which Moshe spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the desert plain opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, and Lavan and Chatzorot and Dizahav, eleven days' journey from Chorev by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. And it came to be in the fortieth year, in the eleventh new moon, on the first day of the new moon, that Moshe spoke to the children of Israel according to all that Hashem had commanded him concerning them. After he had stricken Sichon, sovereign of the Amorites, who dwelt in Cheshbon, and Og, the sovereign of Basham, who dwelt at Ashtarot and Edri, beyond the Arden in the land of Moab, Moshe undertook to declare this Torah, saying, Hashem our God spoke to us in Chorav, saying, You have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Turn and set out on your way, and go into the mountains of the Amorites, and to all the neighboring places in the desert plain, in the mountains and in the low country, and in the Negev, and on the sea coast, to the land of the Canaanites, and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which Hashem swore to your fathers, to Avraham, to Yitzhak, and to Yaakov, to give to them and their seed after them. And I spoke to you at that time, saying, I am unable to bear you by myself. Hashem, your Elohim, has increased you, and see you are today as numerous as the stars of the heavens. Hashem, Elohim of your fathers, is going to add to you a thousand times more than you are, and bless you as he has spoken to you. How do I bear your pressure and your burden and your strife by myself? 
Choose men wise and understanding and known to your tribes, and let me appoint them as your heads. And you answered me and said, The word which you have spoken to us is good. And I took the heads of your tribes, wise men and known, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands and leaders of hundreds and leaders of fifties and leaders of tens and officers for your tribes. And I commanded your judges at that time, saying, When hearing between your brothers, judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with him. Do not show partiality in judgment. Hear the small as well as the great. Do not be afraid of anyone's face, for the judgment belongs to Elohim. And the case which is too hard for you, bring it to me, and I shall hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the words which you should do. Then we set out from Chorev and went through all that great and awesome wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites, as Hashem our Elohim had commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, You have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which Hashem our Elohim is giving us. See, Hashem, your Elohim, has set the land before you. Go up and possess it, as Hashem, Elohim of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear, nor be discouraged. And all of you came near to me and said, Let us send men before us, and let them search out the land for us, and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up, and of the cities into which we would come. And the matter was good in my eyes, so I took twelve of your men, one from each tribe, And they turned and went up into the mountains, and came to the Wadi Eshkol, and spied it out. And they took some of the fruit of the land in their hands, and brought it down to us. And they brought back word to us, saying, The land which Hashem our Elohim is giving us is good. But you would not go up, and rebelled against the mouth of Hashem your Elohim, and grumbled in your tents, and said, Because Hashem was hating us, He has brought us out of the land of Mitzrayim to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. What are we going to do? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we, the cities are great and walled up to the heavens, and we saw the sons of the Anakim there too. Then I said to you, Have no dread or fear of them. Hashem your Elohim who is going before you, he does fight for you according to all that he did for you in Mitzrayim before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you saw how Hashem your Elohim has borne you as a man bears a son in all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in this matter you are putting no trust in Hashem your Elohim, who is going before you in the way to seek out a place for you to pitch your tents, to show you the way you should go, in fire by night and in cloud by day. And Hashem heard the voice of your words and was wroth and took an oath, saying, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land of which I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb the son of Yafuna, he shall see it. And to him and his children I give the land on which he walked, because he followed Hashem completely. And Hashem was enraged with me for your sake, saying, You do not go in there either. Yehoshua the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there. Strengthen him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit. And your little ones and your children, who you say are for a prey, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they are going in there, and to them I give it, and they are to possess it. But you... Turn and take your journey into the wilderness by way of the Sea of Reeds. Then you answered and said to me, We have sinned against Hashem. We ourselves are going up, and we shall fight as Hashem our God has commanded us. And when each one of you had girded on his battle gear, you were ready to go up into the mountain. And Hashem said to me, Say to them, Do not go up nor fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be smitten before your enemies. So I spoke to you, but you would not listen, and rebelled against the mouth of Hashem, and acted proudly, and went up into the mountain.
Then the Amorites who dwelt in that mountain came out against you and chased you as bees do, and drove you back from Seir to Hormah. And you returned and wept before Hashem, but Hashem would not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. So you dwelt in Kadesh many days, according to the days that you dwelt. In the ancient Near East, kings were everywhere. The majority of kings did not rule over entire nations so much as they oversaw a single city and the villages of the surrounding countryside. Because of the difficulty in travel, kingdoms were not very large geographically either. This is why during the conquest we read of Israel defeating multiple kings throughout the land of Canaan. Joshua 6 speaks of the king of Jericho, and then Joshua 8 speaks of the king of Ai, just a few miles away. Joshua 10 then speaks of Adon Sadek, the king of Jerusalem, who upon hearing what Israel done to Ai in Jericho made a pact with Hoham, the king of Hebron, Piram, the king of Yarmut, Yaphia, the king of Lachish, Davir, the king of Eglon, to form a coalition to fight Israel. And then in Joshua 11, once Israel defeated these five kings, then four more kings created a coalition of many more unnamed kings to stand against Israel. In the ancient Near East, for the most part, was a series of minor kings who ruled over small areas of land, with one and perhaps several cities in them. And then there were times when a king would gather power to himself through a treaty or defeat and would gather kings to serve under him. In the ancient Near East, this king of kings was known as a suzerain. The suzerain king was a king who ruled over other kings, and those other kings were then known as vassals. Still, kings in their own right and still in charge of their kingdoms, but now to a lesser degree as they served a king who ruled over them. Now, this was not a later invention. We've seen this set up before and we saw it very early on. You remember Genesis 14? When we were in that chapter, I brought up this idea of suzerainty. So let's go back and look at it. Genesis 14, 1 through 4. And it came to be in the days of Amraphel, the king of Shinar, Ariok, the king of Elisar, Ketalaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, the king of Goyim, that they fought against Bera, the king of Sodom, and Birsha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Adma, Shemeber, the king of Zavoim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Ketalaomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Eight kings served the suzerain, Ketalaomer, and they were his vassals. After twelve years of this arrangement, five of those kings decided to rebel against Ketalaomer. They raised armies and formed their own coalition to fight against their high king. And so while each of the vassals would have had only one treaty with the suzerain, the suzerain would have as many treaties as he did vassals each treaty different and unique to the relationship between the suzerain and the vassal. Now, this idea of the suzerain king is one that's found throughout the Bible and throughout archaeology as well. We see it in Ezekiel 26.7, For thus says the Master Hashem, See, I am bringing against Zor from the north Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, a king of kings with horses and with chariots and with horsemen, even an assembly and many people. In Ezekiel, Nebuchadnezzar is called king of kings by God. This is language for a suzerain. He's a king who rules over other kings. And in the book of Daniel, we read Daniel using the same language when he speaks to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2 verse 37. It says, You, O king, are king of kings, for the God of heavens has given you a kingdom, power, and strength, and preciousness. 
And in the book of Ezra, the king of Persia sends a letter to Ezra. And in the preamble of the letter, one of the king's titles is King of Kings, Ezra 7.12. Artach Shashta, king of kings to Ezra the priest, a perfect scribe of the law of the God of heavens. And then it continues on into the letter. Now, suzerain vassal treaties would be entered into for many reasons. The primary reasons included, one, defeat. When a king defeated another king, the winner would then draft a treaty with the loser and impose certain obligations upon the loser, and the loser would then serve as a vassal to the winner. The second primary reason for this type of treaty would have been when a nation stepped into a conflict and saved another king from invading or occupying army. The king that had been saved would then owe the king who saved them and become his vassal and serve him, rather than the one who had defeated him. The third main reason for a treaty of this sort was for some sort of trade. Usually the vassal would agree to send goods to the suzerain in exchange for military protection and the stability that the suzerain could provide through goods. When two nations entered into a treaty, there were commonalities that had been found among all of the ancient treaties that we have on record. First of all, there's a preamble. This is a short section that opens the document and records the location that the treaty was being made in and the parties who were to be part of the treaty. Second, there would be a historical prologue. This section of the treaty outlined the history that had occurred between the two parties. Now, this section usually highlighted the good things that the suzerain had done for the vassal. This would rarely include anything good about the vassal or any benefit that the vassal may have given to the suzerain. Or in the case of a treaty of a defeated vassal, it would outline the battles that the suzerain had won, and it would proverbially sing the praises and the might of the suzerain. Third, there would be stipulations, laws, and regulations. This section would include the laws that the suzerain expected to be enacted within the vassal nation. Now, it should be stated in the ancient Near East, law did not conform to modern expectations of statutory law. This simply means that we as modern Westerners, we commonly misunderstand the purpose of ancient law codes. Now, we're going to get to more of this in an upcoming teaching, but for now, simply recognize that when you hear the word law, your mind thinks of the wrong thing. It's a modern thing that was not used in the ancient world. However, I'm going to continue to use the word law for now, and in a few teachings, we'll get into exactly what the difference is between the modern idea of law and the ancient idea of law. So fourth, the treaty would contain arrangements for depositing treaty copies. Because the treaty, it would be copied. There would be two of them. And each king that was part of the treaty would then receive their copy. And these copies were to be stored by each king. Usually the copy was stored in the temple of the god of the nation, the god that was overseeing the treaty. Five, there would be arrangements for a regular reading of the treaty before the people, because these treaties, they were not secret. Everyone was to know of the treaty and its contents. And so the treaty would then be publicly read at certain intervals that were set in the terms of the treaty itself. With this, there was no excuse for any member of the vassal nation not knowing what was expected of themselves or their kings or their nation in relation to their suzerain, and the suzerain and his people would know of their own responsibilities toward the vassal. 6. Tribute The suzerain would impose a tribute upon the vassal as part of the arrangement. The size of the tribute, the frequency of payments, the means by which it would be paid, they would all be outlined in the treaty. 7. Witnesses to the Covenant Agreement 
And no covenant was considered binding without witnesses, and so witnesses were called to oversee the signing of the treaty. The treaty would contain the identities of the witnesses and often contain their seal. In most treaties, the various gods of the various nations were called as witnesses to the treaty, as well as human witnesses, and the gods were to ensure that the treaty was followed. And 8. Curses for violating the covenant stipulations and blessings for obedience to them. The various gods who were then part of the treaty were to oversee the curses and the blessings that would be poured out on the signatories when they obeyed, or, alternatively, when they disobeyed. And these are the sections of the Suzerain Vassal Treaty that have been found in nearly all of the treaties that we have on record today. And so when we turn to the book of Deuteronomy, it's been widely recognized that this book takes on the cast of a Suzerain Vassal Treaty. Now, this is not a suzerain vassal treaty, as this was not a treaty between kings, but rather, this was a document that outlined the relationship between God and Israel. So, instead of a human king, we have God who is setting himself up in the symbol of a king. We have each of us being pictured as kings in our own right. But where a suzerain vassal treaty would outline the way that the vassal nations were to interact with each other, instead, in Deuteronomy, we find that the interactions described are interpersonal. The person sitting next to you at church or in your synagogue or in your weekly gathering is also a vassal of this great king, and so treat them in these ways. We truly are a nation of kings when seen in this light, with our high king who then rules over us all. And Deuteronomy is the terms of our treaty with him. And as we go through the book, we'll find each of the sections of a suzerain treaty in place throughout the book of Deuteronomy. For example, number one, the preamble is Deuteronomy 1, 1 through 5. This is the preamble of Deuteronomy, and it gives the setting of where this treaty was being made, who the parties are, and the manner of its giving. Two, the historical prologue. Deuteronomy 1, 6 through 449 contains the history of Israel with Hashem, the things that he did for them, etc., Number three, stipulations, laws, and regulations. This is Deuteronomy 5, 1 through 25, verse 19. And it contains the listing of the rules, regulations, commands, and stipulations of the law that Hashem expected from his vassals. Four, arrangements for depositing treaty copies. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 10 tells of a memorial stones that are to be erected and to be written with the words of the treaty. And Deuteronomy 31.26 states that a copy of the treaty, this book of the law, was to be placed in the Holy of Holies next to the Ark. 5. The arrangements for the regular reading of the treaty before the people. Deuteronomy 31.10-13 calls for public reading of this treaty every seven years at Sukkot. 6. Tribute. Deuteronomy 26 covers the tribute and the honor that is to be rendered to Hashem yearly by each of his vassals. 7. Witnesses to the Covenant Agreement. Well, Deuteronomy 30.19 tells us that the heavens and the earth are witnesses of this covenant. And 8. Curses for violating the covenant stipulations and blessings for obedience to them? Well, it's Deuteronomy 27.11-28.68. These recount blessings and curses that are to be enacted on the vassals. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. This book conforms to this pattern of suzerain-vassal treaty, so let's dig in and see what it contains for us. Now, the chapter that we are in today, chapter 1, contains both the preamble and the very first part of the historical prologue contained in Deuteronomy. 
So verse 1 through 5, this preamble, contains the location that this document was given in and ratified. It is beyond the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the desert plain opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel and Levan and Chatzorot and Dizahav, eleven days' journey from Chorah by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now one interesting fact that is contained in this preamble is that this place where Israel is camping at the moment on the east side of the Jordan, it's only eleven day journey from Mount Sinai. If one were to follow the path from Sinai to Kadesh to Shittim by passing through Mount Seir, which Israel had to route around, it's only eleven day journey. An eleven day journey that took them forty years. But they're here now, and so we will find when we get into this historical prologue just what took so much time for them to complete their journey. The preamble also gives the timing of the creation of this treaty. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, just after the defeat of Sihon and Og. And then next, verse 6, then begins the historical prologue. Now this prologue will continue through the end of chapter 4, and we're going to be in this prologue for the next several weeks. And each week, we're going to see a different part of the history of Hashem and his people reflected. This week, the text focuses on the journeys that Israel has taken from their path from Sinai to Kadesh. Next week, we'll read of Israel's interactions with the nations that they encountered along the way. And finally, in week three, we're going to read of the law that Hashem has prepared for Israel. All of these sections bound together are the historical prologue before we then get into the legal code that begins in chapter five. So when we start this section of the prologue, we find that the time frame that the historical prologue begins is at Mount Sinai. It does not begin in Egypt when this new interaction between Hashem and Israel began to manifest, but rather at Sinai, the place where the covenant was made, the place where Israel was brought into relationship with Hashem. And the prologue does not begin at their arrival at Sinai, but it begins at their departure from Sinai. And the command was given to go and to take the land that was set before Israel. Verse 8 then bearing the reminder that this land was promised to their forefathers. Each one of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, received the promise that their offspring would inherit this land. This is a subtle nod to the longer history of Israel and Hashem that stretches all the way back to Abraham and is not limited to this concise retelling that opens Deuteronomy. Verse 9 then recounts how Moses was unable to lead this vast nation himself because Hashem had multiplied the people and they had become as stars in the heavens. Again, a call back to the promise that had been given to each of the patriarchs. And it is because of the size of Israel that Moses then suffers his crisis of leadership. He cannot do this alone. He needs help. And so we're reminded of the story of the leaders and judges being appointed to oversee the day-to-day operations and tensions in Israel. And in verse 16 and 17, we read the charge that was given to Israel's judges. And this charge is one that is important because the expectations that are given here are reflective of the suzerain that is part of this treaty. The suzerain judges fairly. The suzerain does not show partiality. When you judge... Do so as if you were acting on behalf of the suzerain, because you are. And because those that you are sitting in judgment over are also his vassals, so treat them with fairness. And so Israel journeyed from Sinai to Kadesh. And in verse 22, we get the rest of the story of the spies from back in Numbers 13. 
Now in Numbers 13, the chapter opens with Hashem giving a command to scout the land of Israel and the way in which to do so. But here we discover that the people came to Moses and asked to be allowed to send men to scout the land. And so a man was appointed from each tribe to be the scout. And so the men went through the land. And the only place mentioned is the Wadi Eshkol. Again, this place mentioned is a subtle nod to the longer history of Israel, as this place is near Mamre in the cave of Machpelah, the burial site of the patriarchs. And then, according to Moses, the spies brought back a good report, but it was the people who refused to go up. Now, if we turn back to Numbers 13, this is not exactly how it went down as recorded there. In Numbers 13, it was the spies that slandered the land. And it was the slander that then led the people to rebel and refuse to begin the conquest when they were commanded. And Moses does acknowledge this in upcoming verses that the ten spies gave bad reports and two gave a good report. But here he says that the spies brought back a good report. So why does Moses lead with, and you refused? Is Moses being disingenuous here with this? Is he misremembering? Why is he telling the story slightly differently here than it was told in Numbers? And the difference is found in what each story is trying to accomplish. In Numbers, the narrative was revealing the process of the failure to take the land. The spies went and spied out the land, they returned, and there was division in their conclusions. Ten were afraid to go, two were faithful and ready to go. And the process began at the top and then trickled down to the rest. But it was the people crying out that prevented Israel from going into the land. You see, in Deuteronomy, the text is not concerned with the process of how it all played out. Moses isn't concerned about the order of the things. Rather, the concern in Deuteronomy is the result of it. You heard a positive report from the spies. You saw the fruit and some of the spies attempted to give courage to the people. The land was good and everyone agreed on that. But the result was that the people failed. The people rebelled against their suzerain. The people then accused the suzerain of ill intent by claiming that he had brought them out into the wilderness for the purpose of killing them. And the evil reports of the tall people and tall cities, it's too much for us to bear. It was the report of the inhabitants of the land, the challenge that they faced in taking the land, the fearful prospect of facing giants. This is what caused Israel to stumble and rebel. The land was good, but the cost appeared to be too great. And then in verse 29 through 33, Moses recounts his own arguments that he made to get the people to have faith. Arguments that we don't read of in Numbers. And these arguments in tradition suzerain vassal treaty style sing the praises of the suzerain. Your suzerain goes before you. Your suzerain fights for you. He carries you like children. He has supplied all your needs. He has worked miracles for you. The suzerain wants only good for you, so trust him. But you didn't. And so the suzerain's anger burned against you, and he judged the entire population as lacking, except for the two who did trust him. The faithful received a great reward, while the rest were condemned to die in the wilderness. This is a reminder that those who remain faithful will receive a great reward, and those who prove faithless will be cut off. An unspoken question to all who hear, then, what kind of vassal will you be?
And then in a dazzling display of mental acrobatics in verse 37, Moses then states that Hashem was enraged with him because of their, the people's, lack of faith. And it was because of the people that Moses was being prevented from going in. Now we know this isn't technically true. Moses was forbidden entry into the land because of his own failure to bring glory to Hashem when he was commanded to. Instead, in that moment, he took the glory for himself. Again, is Moses being disingenuous? He is connecting the seemingly constant rebellion of the people in his own single event of rebellion at Kadesh to the rebellion of the people when they failed to trust Hashem when a water crisis came upon them many years later. And we suspect that the reason that Moses was in a mental state of rebellion was because he had spent so long dealing with the people who were in rebellion. And why was Moses still in the wilderness 40 years later and not sipping pina coladas on the shore of the Mediterranean? It's because of this initial rebellion of the people. And that placed hardship on him that then caused Moses to reach the end of his rope with these people who just didn't get it. It is entirely possible that Moses does blame the people for his own failure to take the land. This is human nature after all, right? Shift the blame. It was the woman you gave me that gave me the fruit. Well, it was the serpent that you created that tempted me to eat the fruit. It's always someone else that pushes our buttons and is then ultimately responsible for our own failures. Very few of us are willing to take the blame for our failures without making excuses. And it seems from this passage and another that we will read near the end of the book that Moses truly does blame the people for his own failure. He feels cheated out of the reward that should have been his for leading this people all this way and putting up with their crap for so long. And frankly, which of us wouldn't? After all that Moses did, a single moment of weakness was all it took to be forbidden the reward that he had spent so long looking forward to. Continuing on in verse 38, Moses then recalls that now it is Joshua who will lead the people and bring them into the land. He will cause Israel to inherit. And the children that Israel was so concerned for, the children that were used as the excuse to disobey, the innocent and the vulnerable that were held up as a prop to cause rebellion in Israel, These same children that you complain will be nothing but prey. They will be the predators in the next generation. They will take the land. They will inherit it where you do not. And so Israel rebelled once again. They readied themselves for battle and they went to war and the inhabitants of the land, well, they defeated you and they drove you away. Your failure was complete. And in your shame and in your defeat, you were forced to sit at Kadesh for a long time, like a child, in time out, until you could learn how to behave as faithful adults, faithful vassals to your high king. Now, one interesting feature of this entire chapter is the usage of the pronouns us and you. Moses is telling this narrative to the people as if the people who were listening to him had been there at Horeb as if they had been there on the journey to Kadesh, as if they themselves had refused to enter the land. But this is not the generation that experienced those things then made those decisions. This is their children. Most of them were not even born when these events happened, and yet Moses is calling them out on this. What is happening here is not an error. 
He is revealing that the covenants that have been cut between Israel and Hashem are generational. They are for all time. They are for a nation and not for individuals. And so, yes, yes, you right there, you listening to the sound of my voice, you were there at Horeb. You rebelled at Kadesh. You have grumbled against your suzerain God and king. You have failed to follow through on what you have been told to do. Because if you are of the nation of Israel, and if you are part of the covenant that governs Israel, then the history of Israel is your own personal history. And the events of the past are the events of your own life. And just as in the Passover, as each of us is to look on the Passover, as if it had happened to us personally, so too the events of the wilderness are ours to bear as well. We should each read through these stories as if our own faults are being exposed. And after going through numbers, I pray that you now have an appreciation for what that means. This opening chapter, as we've already spoken of, tells the story of Israel. But as we've also discussed, it does so from the perspective of the rebellion of Israel and the gracious faithfulness and justice of Hashem, their king. Israel, bad. Hashem, good. He wants nothing but good for you. But your continual rebellion prevents you from receiving it. We are our own worst enemy. We need not look further than ourselves to discover the primary actor that is a threat to the kingdom of God because it is us. It is in our own hearts. And yet Hashem enters into covenant with us, a covenant that sets us up as vassal kings, kings in our own right and in charge of the area of influence that is ours. But you answer to another king, to a king of kings, our suzerain, Hashem, the high king who is in the heavens. But we have another king as well, or is it the same king? The prophets tell us of this king, the one known as the Messiah, the king of Israel that will save them from their oppressors. And in the book of Daniel, we read about this one who would become king. Daniel seven thirteen through 14 I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As Daniel is serving a human king of kings, he receives a vision of one who is like the Son of Man, who will be given a kingship that surpasses even the great and powerful Nebuchadnezzar, and the great and powerful Belshazzar, and the great and powerful Darius who defeated Babylon. This one will be granted a kingdom by the Ancient of Days himself, and his kingdom will cover the entire earth, and his kingdom will never be destroyed. Now we know that Yeshua is the fulfillment to this promise. He is the one who ascended to the Father on the clouds, as Daniel says. And his kingdom is one that has been established here on earth and will never pass away. And while in the Old Testament the term for king of kings is only ever applied to pagan kings, we do find a hint of it here in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 10 verse 17 
For Hashem, your God, is God of gods, a master of master, great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. Not king of kings, but God of gods and Lord of lords. Now, in the New Testament, we do find usage of this term, while limited, but we find it applied to only one person, Yeshua, the Messiah, the King of Israel. 1 Timothy 6, 13-16 In the sight of God who gives life to all, and of Messiah Yeshua who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you that you guard the command spotlessly, blamelessly, until the appearing of our Master Yeshua the Messiah, which in his own season he shall reveal, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or is able to see, to whom be respect and everlasting might. Amen. Now, I've spoken on this before, the coronation of the cross, the king ascending to his throne and ruling from heaven with the Father, the king of all creation with a kingdom that spans all creation, every tongue, tribe, and nation, all part of his vast kingdom, and each person within his kingdom, a vassal. Each person a king or queen in their own right over the things that Hashem has entrusted to them. To rule as you see fit, as long as the way you rule conforms to the treaty that he has with you. And the terms of that treaty? Well, they are found here in the book of Deuteronomy. You are a king. You are a queen. You have authority that has been given to you in the name of Yeshua. You have been given the task of exerting that authority over creation. When you do, however, be sure that you do so with justice, righteousness, mercy, compassion, and patience. Be sure that you exercise the authority given to you as a reflection of the one who has given you that authority. And in that proper exercise of authority, as a king under the high king, Life is found as we derish chai, as we seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we derish chai as we seek life. Shalom.